Your fever is high and the pressure to log in at work is too. But when you finally decide to take care of you, there's Instacart. Just because that one perfect coworker of yours is attending all meetings, camera on while she's sneezing, coughing, and aching, doesn't mean you have to do the same. Take it from us. Trying to stay on top of things will only get you further behind. Instead, get everything from tissues and teas to cough suppressants and comforting soups delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. If anyone needs anything, they can just redirect their questions to that one perfect coworker. Worker of yours. Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in-depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry-on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to another edition of the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. I want to start off with uh, a little news item for you guys, if, especially if you're flying back from anywhere overseas to the United States. It goes back to 1988. I call them the three moronic questions. Uh, since 1988, U.S. citizens coming back from overseas were always asked the following three questions. And by the way, they've never changed, and the answers have never changed. Here they go. Did you pack the bags yourself? Yes. Had they been with you at all times? Yes. Did anybody give you anything to bring back? No. So the answers have always been yes, yes, and no. And never changes. How effective is it? Zero. It doesn't tell you anything. Even if English isn't your first language, you can train any moron to say yes, yes, and no. And I've been yelling about this for years. And all of us, I'm going to presume all of us want better airport and airline security. We want to know that questions are being asked that are going to help determine if we really are who we say we are, if we're really going where we say we're going, if we're legit. But asking three questions that can only be answered by yes, yes, and no doesn't accomplish anything. And, uh, and finally, apparently, the TSA has decided to, cha to change things up. So I applaud that, but wait, it gets worse. I'm coming back the other day from London to New York. I'd come in from Amman, Jordan to London and changing planes, and now I'm being asked the security questions. I'm expecting the same idiotic yes, yes, and no questions. I didn't get them, so I'm intrigued. So the agent says to me, she says, um, where do you work? I said, I work at CBS News. Oh, what do you do there? I'm the travel editor. Oh, so... What projects are you working on? And I looked at her and I said, none of your business. And she, t she notes that down. And then here it comes. The most moronic question you could think of. I don't care how well-intentioned it is. And by the way, when you hear the question, you, you'll understand my answer. She goes, and what are your hobbies? I said, I said is there a correct answer to this question? What are my hobbies? My hobbies are talking to airline representatives asking stupid questions. Does that qualify? She then hands me my boarding pass. And what is on the boarding pass? Four black S's. I know what that means. I'm being taken out for secondary additional screening because apparently I'm a threat. And I said to her, why did you do that? And her answer was, because you didn't comply with my questions. I said, no, I complied with all of them. They're just stupid questions. They don't accomplish anything. She brings over her supervisor. 
I said, let me guess. She told you I was being difficult. No, I'm being clear. Wouldn't you agree that these rules are stupid? He goes, well, we don't make the rules. I said, yeah, but did you question the rules or are you just following the rules? You're perpetuating the problem. What is the correct answer to what are your hobbies? If I had said knitting, would that have gotten me on the plane? Or, you know, embalming? How about that? That's my hobby, embalming. So I really wish that people would think things through at the security level, at the policy level, before even with the best of intentions, they do this. It makes, so my encouragement to all of you listening to this is we should all say knitting. Just confuse them. We're all knitting. And then let's see what happens. Because other than that, these questions are just as moronic as yes, yes, and no. All right, that's my diatribe for this week. But now, there's another diatribe coming. The Bataan Death March at airports. That's right, airports that are so poorly designed or so poorly redesigned that you're walking up to a mile and a half between gates. Joining me now, the, uh, the travel editor for the Wall Street Journal, one of our good pals, who's hopefully not too tired from walking, Scott McCartney. <laughs> good to be with you, Peter. I, I think you need to take up a different hobby, though. Where, okay, where is it if we all say knitting, all our bags will be searched looking for knitting needles? Yeah, you know what? You're right. Okay, so <laughs> I, I can't say embalming because that would involve fluid. Right. <laughs> so, so why don't we just say baseball cards? Yeah, there you go. Okay, good. But of course, overseas, they don't know what baseball cards are, so all of a sudden that's a threat too. But forgetting that, you understand what I was saying, right? I mean, it's it's a little silly. Absolutely. And for journalists, the question of of what are you working on, one of my favorite stories at the Wall Street Journal is that a a tech reporter was visiting a a, a computer company and, and took along a colleague and the uh, the CEO of the of the computer company says, um, "What do you cover?" And and he looks at him with a straight face and says, "White collar crime." <laughs> it was a very quick end to the conversation. <laughs> the CEO was very nervous. <laughs> well, let's shift gears here and talk a little bit about one of my pet peeves and maybe yours: extremely long walks at airports. Yeah, this is a this is a problem that has grown. Um, it uh, it it really is. Um, uh, getting difficult for passengers to make connections. Um, part of the reason is uh, terminals are getting expanded. Um, part of the reason is design has really changed, so you get long, linear terminals instead of um, uh, round um, uh, knobs, if you, if you will, where you can park a lot of planes on the end or, um, or terminals where you can park planes on both sides of the concourse. Uh, and uh, airports want retail space, um, uh, they want uh, more seating area. Uh, airlines are flying bigger airplanes with uh, wider wingspans, so the gates need to be spread out more. Uh, and, and you end up with, um, in Atlanta, from the domestic check-in to the international gates, it's, it's 1.67 miles. Now, there's a, there's a train, but some people do walk. The airports actually put up lovely art uh, along the walk. Um, the, uh, the terminal in Miami is a mile long. Um, the, if you have to make a connection in Philadelphia, uh, the, the um, one uh, the regional jets for American Airlines are a mile and a half apart from the international flights. And so over and over again, you get these setups where uh, it, it gets very difficult for people um, with any kind of mobility issue or, or any kind of, um, of rush to actually 
make the mile, mile and a half trek to the gate. And the other thing is people do not fly empty-handed. And with so many people making connecting flights, why don't airports allow for those baggage carts to be at gates so that when you walk off the jetway, you grab a cart and then you can go to your next gate? It makes so all the sense in the world. And then you talked, Scott, about you know airports wanting to take out you know people movers and putting in retail in the, in the middle. Uh, but you know what? Can we get back to a basic definition of why we go to an airport in the first place? Yeah. We're not going to the airport to go to the airport. We're going to the airport to get through it. Why are we going there to shop? Why yeah, are we no, going the, there to eat? The, the notion that you take out moving walkways because the, the merchants were complaining that people were trapped on the moving walkway and never stopped in the store because they, they just kind of zoomed on past. Um, well, well, now they have to, uh, you know, walk past, and so more will, may stop into the store. But that's not why they're there, and that's, uh, that's not helpful um, to the traveler, which is, which is the purpose. Um, in some airports, they've taken out the moving walkways to put in bars. Well, you know, people like to sit in the bar because you're spending a lot of time at the airport or whatever. Um, but then again, uh, you've you got to provide some help. Uh, for these long walks. And and for a lot of people who have wised up to this, um, the help is, uh, well, we'll just request a wheelchair um, because then you get an attendant to push you for, <laughs> for that long walk. And, and so you see uh, some flights, um, armies, or, or go, you know, in, in uh, Miami, in the, before the morning, morning rush, you see, um, you know, 20 different wheelchair attendants pooling, waiting to be dispatched. Uh, it gets to be um, you know, a huge network of, uh, of, of wheelchair pushers um, that add, add costs to travel as well. Well, you know, I call those the miracle flights. It's amazing how many people need wheelchairs. Um, and then when they get to their destination, oh, my God, it's a miracle. They can walk. In fact, some of them run. Yeah, and you know, but from their perspective, you know, if the if the walk was five hundred feet or or something, or you know, three hundred feet, one football field, um, I could do that. Um, if you're asking me to walk one point four miles, um, I I can't do that with my bags. A lot of people have have plenty of reasons why they legitimately uh, shouldn't be doing that, and so the, so they need help. So you get the the carts that try and uh, mesh with the with uh, passengers, and and that's a mess. Um, you get the wheelchairs and people uh, handing off a, uh, the poor person in the wheelchair from from one you know wheelchair stop to the next. Um, it's a it's a really interesting problem. Uh, you know, there are architects who who are thinking about well, what's the long term solution. And I think uh, some of the more interesting ideas are, well, what if you could, you could take the carts and separate them out from the main traffic flow, have a separate track for, for carts or for a separate track for moving um, walkways or, or even for wheelchairs? Uh, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of airports have put in um, automatic trains, like, like in Miami, but you know, there's four stops in the mile-long terminal. You, you may find, uh, unless your gate is two stops away, it's faster to walk, and, and that's still a long walk. So there probably ought to be something that's easier to use than a big fancy train um, and yet uh, gets people um, who are on wheels out of the main walking flow. Yeah, and then there's the, 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 the one symbol that seems like it's a nice touch and it's, it's sort of like pleasant and homey but sends the wrong message, and that's the famous rocking chairs at the airports. 
Um, you know, you go to Charlotte and there are these cute little white rocking chairs. You know, isn't that special? And then you realize, wait a minute, the message they're sending me is, hey, man, you're going to be here a while. Um, I don't want to be there a while. I want to get to an airport and get on the plane and leave. I'm not there to entertain my friends, dine, have fine dining, um, or, uh, or read a book. I, I want to go. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, you know, if you're going to be there for, if you're stuck there for four hours, uh, you're going to be glad you had the rocking chair. But, um, but the point is, um, let's not stick people there for four hours. Well, I wish that they could have a rule that nobody who designs an airport can ever be paid for their work until they take four flights from that airport. <laughs> I just want them to understand what they're doing. You know, it's just amazing um, how and, and what, they'll open a new airport in, in Bangkok or they'll open up a new airport in, in uh, you know, in, in, an, in an Asian country. And you, they give you all these baggage carts, and then you take them five feet, and then there's a little monitor there saying, okay, that's as far as you can go with the baggage cart. Yeah. It's ornamental. It, this is a worldwide problem, and, and it's so easy. It's common sense. Yeah, and I, th- I think the retail aspect has, has really made it more difficult. Um, it, it's because of retail that, that a lot of airports will put airplanes only on one side of the concourse, the other side is reserved for retail and for, for clubs and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, airlines want the retail because it helps defray their airport costs. If the, if the airport's bringing in dollars through retail, it's cheaper for the airlines to operate there. Um, so airports oh, sure. obviously want the retail, too. Some passengers want it, but um, I don't think people have really sort of uh, fully realized the, the trade-off that, that's going on here. Um, and happening all over, Fort Lauderdale is is knocking down a uh, perfectly efficient terminal, and it's this kind of L-shaped, and putting in one long linear one that help, will have planes on only one side. Um, I'm sure it'll be lovely, but um, it's going to mean a lot longer walks for people. Well, there's one other thing too, and and people don't realize it when you talk to retail. You know, you get to the airport, you're already told by security you're allowed one carry-on bag and one personal item which, of course, gets defined differently by everybody. And then you go to a retail store there, and you buy something, and what do you do with it? You, where do you put it? you got to carry it on. So finally, I mean, this is the you know necessity being the mother of invention. Some of these retail stores are saying, okay, if you buy something from us, we'll ship it to you free. Now, at least if you're going to do it, there's no schlepping. Right. But still... I have to go back to the basics. I don't know about you, Scott. I take that back. I do know about you. We don't go to the airport to shop, do we? No, we really don't. <laughs> I really find things I need at the airport. Right. And, 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 you know, by the way, if I want to shop at the airport, I could shop on Amazon with the, with the uh, airport Wi-Fi that I probably had to pay for. <laughs> that will be another pet peeve we can discuss. <laughs> right. <laughs> when, when you come back. Hey, we've been talking to Scott McCartney the travel editor of the Wall Street Journal. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. When we come back to the to the CBS Travel Hour, we're going to talk about farm to table and how one chef in New York has totally redefined the word, finally redefined farm to table. Back right after this. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. I'm Peter Greenberg. And joining me now is a chef here in New York who is redefining 
thankfully, the words that I hate. Farm to table. I mean, I'm sick of it. Um, if you think about it, the words farm to table go back to caveman days. It was always farm to table. And so why is it such a cool thing to say? Um, and then, of course, that leads it to be misleading uh, and, and wrong. How about just plain and accurate? Willis Lawhead from the Intercontinental, welcome. Thank you very much. You heard what I just said. I did. You agree with it? I do. Why? I think that uh, farm to table as a as a concept is something that is uh, a fallacy and something that is a, just a advertising gimmick more than anything. Because unless you are serving on the farm from the farm to that particular table on that particular evening. And your server is a cow. And your server <laughs> is a cow, or you're riding in on a cow, um, or you're milking the cow for that particular evening. Uh, it's not possible. So all of the farm-to-table restaurants that I know, or purport, purported to be farm-to-table restaurants that I know, are still serving frise salad from Guatemala. They're still serving berries from California. Um, and in California, Well, that's technically farm-to-table. Uh, correct. Farm to airplane to truck to distributor to truck to restaurant to packaging to table. Right. So sooner or later it gets to the table. It eventually it gets and that's to the, the table. Mis- and that's the misleading part of it. Correct. So how are you changing that? How I'm changing that is um, trying to change the concept completely to sustainable or as sustainable as possible. Um, in the in the present atmosphere, um, I have a, a tremendously large hotel um, with a tremendous amount of banquet business, and for that banquet business, I'm taking out all of the imported fish. I don't serve any Dover sole. I don't serve any imported California fish. I don't serve any Hawaiian fish. I don't serve anything other than what is local and locally caught and locally caught and dayboat caught. Um, so nothing that goes out more than two or, you know, for two or three hours. Um, line caught also is kind of a, and, and diver scallops is also kind of a, a false, um, name, but. Yeah. There's one diver named Dan. Exactly. And he <laughs> diver catches everything. Dan. <laughs> um, but what I'm trying to do is introduce to all of our clients, whether they be dignitaries or royalty or um, or average Joe coming into New York, is a taste of something that is quintessentially New York. Is a taste of something that that is close to home, uh, spiritually, emotionally, from from the heart, but close to home also locally. So I have um, I have a house up in the Catskills, a small little small little place um, where I take my two year old daughter um, and my wife pretty much every weekend, and I have relationships with the farmers, the foragers, the maple syrup um, people that, that will drill into the trees and, and pull that out and reduce You that. know the guy who does the syrup. I know the guy who does the syrup. You know the syrup guy. I know the syrup guy, and I bring that back in my trunk, and it's, it's a point of pride for me to bring back in my trunk of my little Honda HRV something that I serve to the king of Saudi Arabia. You know, or something that I serve to a dignitary from uh, you know any country. So to me, that's a that's a point of pride and a point of heart. See, I had an idea for a restaurant in terms of sourcing. And by the way, everybody has an idea for a restaurant. We're all jerks because we don't know what we're doing. But you know, I'll show you. But you all idea. want to be Rick from Casablanca. 
and being shocked to find out that gambling's going on. I know. But, <laughs> exactly. but my goal, to, I, I had three ideas for a restaurant, right? One was calling it Plan B, because Plan A never works, right? Oh, we couldn't get in there, let's go there. Right. And then it always turns out to be better, right? The second one is, is because of all these other buzzwords that I'm hearing today, I want to open up a restaurant called Gluten for Punishment. Gluten for Punishment? Yeah, That's good. because, I mean, we didn't even know this word 10 years ago. Now everybody has to have gluten-free. Really? Okay. And then the other thing is to call a restaurant, I know a guy. Fair enough. Right? Oh, you want eggs? Oh, yeah, I know a guy. Right. You want the syrup? I know a guy, right? I know the syrup guy. I know the right. syrup guy. I think that what, what you're saying with that title is much more important than farm to table. It means you actually know the guy. I think that um, a spinoff of I Know a Guy would be what my dream restaurant would always has always been would be a restaurant called Scraps. Because <laughs> you know a guy and... Do you and have that, to sit at the end of the table and beg? You don't have to beg. Like a dog? No, you no, don't have okay. to beg like a dog. And we certainly wouldn't serve dog, but... Um, I didn't it, say you serve dog. I was <laughs> like a dog at the end of the table begging for scraps. But uh, it would be it would be scraps. It would be here's here's the prime center of the plate at one restaurant, and the next door would be open for lunch, say, and it would just be scraps, and that would be it. Scraps on a bun, scraps in a bowl, scraps on rice. And, I love it, and that would be it. I love it. Yeah. So I know a guy would be our fine dining restaurant right. where we'd feature the eggs and the syrup and everything like that. And our next door casual would be only open for like two hours because you only have so many scraps. <laughs> that would be my concept. Hey, on a much more serious note, because we talk about truth and labeling, too, and we talk about the concept of farm to table. But let's really talk about truth and labeling in, in general. Sushi. So much sushi is mislabeled. Because I mean, it's all frozen? Well, not only that, tuna... That's called white tuna, isn't tuna? You know, correct, right? I mean, and you have a big card that you use. I mean, we're not just talking about sushi; we're talking about seafood in general, as to what's appropriate, what's really a bad idea, to, for either you to source or for me to eat. Well, I think that um, speaking of white tuna, which is something that you shouldn't eat um, on any sort of regularity. Um, I mean, it's it's escalar. And branding in general, I think, has gone into into food way too much. I mean, we're we're not. I'm not running a Gap, and I'm not running a Banana Republic, and I'm not running something that is Egyptian cotton. Um, if I'm serving something that is Escalar, I should call it Escalar. I don't think that there's any reason to come up with a name that says White Tuna um, or Chilean Sea Bass when it's Patagonian Toothfish. Call it what it is. Tell the customer what it is. If they like it, great. If they don't, great. I mean, they did a test here in New York. And it was something like a 90% failure rate that at least in one or markets. two... Right. At least one or two items on every sushi menu wasn't what it was. Correct. And in the, in the sad to say, in the, in the markets, I mean, I don't want to name them, but... You can. In the, in the higher end, Whole Foods and Fairways and uh, D'Agostino's, they were labeling things that were incorrect. And labeling weights that were incorrect. I mean, things should be labeled exactly what they are. How does the consumer know? People like you, tell them. Yes, but if you took me into a, one of those markets today, and I looked at white tuna, I wouldn't know that it was Escalar. How would I know? I wouldn't know. Well, I think we have to regulate. I mean, why would we be able to call something that's white tuna? I don't call it um, I mean, black beef. I right. mean, I mean it, it's, it's something that we have to regulate on a larger scale. And then we just have to call everything kale. Everything should be kale. Kale. Or a chip. Call everything a chip. 
<laughs> people like chips. Do they really? Everybody likes chips. Everybody like, likes crunchy. What do you have crunchy on your menu? Uh, nothing. <laughs> I, I'm the anti-crunchy restaurant. Yeah. I've I'll have an order crunchy. of the, uh, the crunchy white tuna, please. That is not crunchy. No, no. no. We, we, if it's crunchy white tuna, you're going to the hospital. Exactly. Exactly. What's the thing that makes you the angriest as a, as a, as a diner, not as a chef? Um, aside from, you mean from a food perspective yeah. or a service? From a food, we'll get to service in a second, because I, I have an idea about that, too. Um, from a food perspective, I think, uh, I think that everybody should be responsible. Everybody should be a steward of the environment. It should be understood. So I really don't need a tremendous amount of description on where the mushrooms came from, because I assume if I'm eating in an area in Kansas City that the mushrooms are from Kansas City. If I'm eating in an area in, in Texas, that the onions are a local onion. If I'm eating in Georgia, it should be something that's from Georgia. So I don't like, I mean, it's not that I don't like it. It's just that I find it irritating that it's a, a constant repetition of this is where it's from. And if I'm coming from New York to Georgia, what do I know about Bob's Farm in Georgia? It doesn't really matter. Leave it off the menu. I assume that you're being a steward of the environment, and that's what we should all do. So that's a little bit irritating. But there's also the, the, the sort of idiotic comfort level that people th seem to think they need. That they, you know, it's sort of like the, the, the cheeseburger that you have at McDonald's in Nebraska is going to taste the exact same as the cheeseburger you're going to have in Boston, right? Which, by the way, I'm not a big fan of doing that, but I'm just saying that's the concept. And that's a successful concept. I mean, it, I should be able to get the same bag of Pringles or a box of Pringles anywhere in the world. And you live on Pringles, don't you? I do. I like processed uh, Pringles <laughs> beyond belief. Um, All right, now here's my pet peeve as, as a consumer, as a customer. I call it the tyranny of the restaurant industry, the terrible two tops. Terrible twos? Terrible twos. I think that if I'm going to spend money to have a nice out evening out and have, and, and I hate to use the words fine dining, but let's throw that in there while we're at it. I don't want to sit there like I'm on the subway, three seconds away from somebody else with their elbows hitting me at a terrible two. For me, I'm a big fan of, I, I, I admit this, when I make a restaurant reservation, I always make it for three. Because they got to put me at the so table for four. take the four top. And, and, and by the way, if they tell me that they want to charge me more for that, I'm almost inclined to pay for it, simply because I have this space I have, I have a little bit more territory to work with, and I'm not sitting there like I'm, I'm a refugee on a boat trying to enjoy a meal. So is that because you spend a great portion of your life listening to other people's conversations that you really don't want to hear anybody to your right or left? Or? It's not as much that. Is it just, I just want a little more space. I agree with elbow room. Elbow room's nice. Yeah. Nice to have. Yeah. And, um, and one of my pet peeves about service is getting either the front end of a belly or the back end of a waiter um, squeezing in in order to take my order right. um, or deliver my you know, glass of wine. It's a little bit irritating. So if I make a reservation at your restaurant for three, you know the scam already because you know I'm going to just come in with one other person. Our tables are well-spaced. Okay, I'm just double-checking. I just <laughs> want to make sure you understand. We're talking to Willis Lawhead from the, from the Intercontinental here in New York, the Barclay, the executive chef. What's the one thing that you'd want to change at your restaurant? Uh, the one thing that I would want to change is a little bit more space and a little bit less TVs. Um, I'm anti-TV in any restaurant. I'm anti-visual um, motivation. TV in the bar or TV in the restaurant? Anything. Really? I, I think TV, well, I'm also raising a daughter with very little TV uh, access. Sesame Street's great. I mean, there's, there are certain things that I'm um, amenable to. 
but constant onslaught of information while the while the music's going and the server's talking and the bar you hear the shake shake. But you shake. see, it's sort of like the psychographics of eating. I've always found, and I think there are studies that prove it, that the louder the music, the faster you eat, the faster they turn the tables. Yeah, it, quite possibly. I mean, the the total onslaught of information I think is overpowering. I miss the days, and I grew up in, um, in going out to eat with my family, and it was it was quiet. You had conversation. It wasn't oh, what's going on on the TV, or oh, what's Trump saying over in the background, or oh, what's the music? I, oh, I know this song. It's uh, it, to me, it's irritating. Can I'd rather... you ever have a restaurant where it's an iPhone free zone? Oh, I would love that. I would. Well, no, I like my iPhone. I have it right <laughs> over here, but uh, I turn it over. Because you know what happens? People don't look up anymore when they're ta- when they're eating. Because they're, they're, they're multitasking on their phone, and they're not talking to the person they're actually having dinner with. And I have a problem, again, with, uh, with raising children, seeing my daughter sitting at a table while we're trying to have a conversation. And then at the next table, there's two children with iPads sitting there. And to me, that's intrusive to her. Because then she goes, oh, I, wanna, I, want, that. I yeah. want to go look at that iPad. And, I, and she can see it. She says, oh, I, I want that. I mean, keep it away. Yeah. I agree. All right. Just double checking. So, table for three, no iPhone, no TV. I got it. We're in. I got it. Okay. Then we just have to worry about the menu. And I know a guy. We're done. (laughs) (laughs) This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. We've been speaking with Willis Lawhead from the Intercontinental Barkley right here in New York. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.